Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to this, the latest HR on the Offensive podcast with me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners. As always, thank you very, very much for joining me. And today, I've got a bit of one-on-one time with a friend, a colleague, um, a fellow Arsenal supporter, although we won't bore you with all of our various stories about Arsenal, whether you're a fan or not. It's uh, an industry uh, influencer in the HR and recruitment talent space. I've got Merv Dinan, who's joining me. Merv, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Hello, Chris. It's great to be on the show. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So what I wanted to do, the reason why we've decided to get a bit of time together is to have a little chat about a white paper, which you put together with the guys from SHL and also um, with Matt Alder, your co-conspirator when it comes to uh, all things talent and all of that sort of stuff and, and thought leadership. And of course, uh, we can talk a little bit about you guys and two heads if you like as well. But before we talk about the white paper, just for the benefit of those people who may, well, I was going to say may not know who you are, but most people know who you are, Merv, because you're an influencer. So tell us a little bit about your background, uh, who you are, what you do, and a little bit about SHL as well, and two heads as well might be useful. Okay, thank you, Chris. Uh, Yes, the dreaded I word, influencer. Primarily, I mean, most people know I've got a long background in recruitment and HR, and over the last 10, 12 years, been uh, primarily doing content. I, I, I work with, I partner with work tech or HR and recruitment technology businesses, but we now call it work tech, to research market trends, see what's going on in the market and to write white papers, thought leadership stuff around what's happening and and how to make the world of work better. Co-authored them with Matt Alder, who some might know from the Recruiting Futures podcast, which is uh, his. Uh, We've also co-authored two books. The first book, Exceptional Talent, was uh, released in, was released, was published in 2017. And the forthcoming book, Digital Talent is published on the 3rd, 3rd of March, 2022. And that book looks at, I suppose, how the, the attraction, hiring, development, retention of people uh, of the digital talent you need has changed in a world of digital transformation. And it was interesting because one of the things that comes through loud and clear, uh, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, is about experience. When I started The World of Work, nobody could care less what I thought about where I worked, what I thought about how I was hired or anything. It was just put up and shut up. But now we are very conscious of the experience people get, whether it's working for us, whether it's applying for us, whether it's as we develop them, as we promote them. And even if people exit the business, it's now obviously much more important. And one of the areas since I've been involved, I suppose, in research and writing, so the last 10, 12 years, the, the biggest area has been candidate experience. And I, I can look back on blogs written 12, 13 years ago in the very early days of social HR, social recruiting, and everybody was moaning about the candidate experience. If I think back to being an agency recruiter years before that, everybody was moaning about it then as well. And I, I, I was the middle person then. 
uh, having to explain to clients why it didn't look good, that they just weren't getting back to their people. SHL, most people will know because of their assessments, because of the way that, that they can assess and understand people, uh, strengths, weaknesses, areas for development, growth. And they, they've been a part of talent management for a number of years. They also now are very much involved in talent acquisition in terms of assessing candidates from application to interviewing, uh, looking at skills, looking at potential and helping companies to, to I suppose, work out who's the best fit and, and who would uh, you know, who might thrive in their organization. Organizations and one of the things that, that that they're quite keen on is is the fact that the application process and, and the hiring process is quite archaic. And when we look at how the world is done now and how companies like like Netflix and and, and guys like that, L'Oreal, what they do for their consumers, uh, there are a lot of lessons we can learn for the job candidates. Because after all, you know, candidates are consumers too. They can recommend us, and a lot more is shared online. So I suppose. Yeah. You know, for candidate experience, I would start with the stats. And that's, that's you know, I, I was involved in research amongst 14,000 job seekers about three years ago. And 86% said their decision on whether or not to join a company is based on how they're treated during the application and interview. Glassdoor found that 72% of people will share a bad candidate experience online because they want they want to vent and they want other people to know what they went through. And over half of candidates said that if they see negative reviews, particularly about uh, canned experience and application online, they, they won't apply. Yeah, and satisfied candidates. Uh, IBM research showed that if candidates are satisfied with the experience they get, even if they don't get the job, they're twice as likely to recommend the organisation to some somebody else. Eighty-seven percent say this is LinkedIn. Great recruitment experience can change their mind about a company they weren't interested in joining, and eighty-three percent say that you know a negative interview experience will turn them the other way then yeah. make make them then doubt and not join a company they wanted to join so this is hugely important and i just you know i felt not enough time was devoted to it so we got together to research i suppose what's happening out there particularly in the consumer world that could apply to um kind of experience so we can get that experience that people want to share want to talk about and want to recommend yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And so even on this podcast, so as Lace Partners, a HR consultancy, we work with large organizations, HR teams. We've spent a t we've spent plenty of time on our podcast talking about the employee experience. You know, how are you delivering a good employee experience? What's your employer value proposition, your EVP? And I think a lot of organizations, they almost I feel like they almost chunk them into these blocks, don't they? You've got the candidate experience block and then you've got the employee experience block. And then if you like, you've got the alumni when you're offboarding and they don't no longer work for you block. But there are some threads that run throughout what you've just said about, you know, people who are candidates who don't get the job, they're still consumers at the end of the day. Well, that thread runs throughout and being able to, to have a positive experience, whether you're a candidate, whether you're an employee or whether you're an ex-employee, an alumni, I think it's really, really important. So for me, that life cycle is is quite in interesting and particularly how organisations, I, I don't know, well, perhaps there are plenty of organisations that, that see that life cycle through and see it as one unified process. But I've seen businesses that just chunk 
down as this is the candidate experience well, that's not our area anymore because we're the talent team with the recruitment team you know handing it across now to hr to deal with the employee experience where it's having that that unified approach i think is quite quite integral it's quite important overall yeah definitely there is a book coming out on the 3rd of march next year about that yeah the the the, the candidate stroke employee experiences one seamless intuitive journey yeah, nobody, nobody accepts a job offer and says, well, I quite like the interviewing. I wonder what the onboarding is going to be like. And, and I wonder if they're going to develop me. It's just one thing. And yeah. it's not it's not a relay race. You know, most companies look at it like a relay race, whereas kind of it, it's kind of, you know, talent acquisition does the first lap, hands the baton over to L&D uh, and, and somebody drops the baton because they didn't know the person was starting or something. And that's not what the candidate or, or the employee experiences. Uh, and so yeah. you're you're right. They don't look at things in isolation. Um, and the candidate experience is is the first touch point. And it's interesting because you know, I started the research looking at the fact that they're obviously in the US, there's the Candidate Experience Awards every year. Uh, and the first thing you, you think when you look at that is a different different people get recognized and win it every year. Yeah. People get recognized for, if you like, the gold star Candidate Experience, and they're not even in the, the final list the following year. And, and that's because this is a, a constant it's constantly iterating, and and the, the the it's not something the company does to a candidate. This is the experience we're going to give you. It's kind of every little interaction and every extra hour they don't hear back about the next interview time and stuff. And it's it's companies even if they give a great experience can't just rest on it because somebody else will give a better one. Yeah, no, definitely. So I'll tell you what, then let's um, let's delve into the areas of the uh, the white paper. And of course, um, the white paper focuses on these six shifts. So what we'll do is we'll put in the, the show notes themselves, the details as to where people can get access to the white paper. But the white okay. paper is innovation rising, the six shifts creating exceptional candidate experience. So just what I, what I wanted to do is just maybe take five minutes, um, five minutes, 10 minutes, just to chat through with you each of those different sections and just get a general sort of some thoughts and reflections on each of those sections so the first one is called giving value passive to interactive and of course the paper talks about uh, leaning in to learn so i guess my first question are we seeing organizations kind of better understand and want to be part of that process where they're almost acting as career coaches we kind of are but it's a shift because it's not happening it's something we've identified obviously in people's personal lives they get this all the time every digital interaction with an organization they find out more about the organization more about themselves they're constantly i mean all you have to do is a regular subscription for something anything from from coffee to to drink to food to you know how they look after you and they're constantly adding value to even if you're not going to buy something from them at that time they're adding value to the experience to make sure you buy next time and so it's the giving value i think is the most important thing because if you do reject somebody what what are they getting out the process what they need to know why they've been rejected or why they've been hired but it's giving them something of value they can act upon and say you know what company at lace partners were great they didn't offer me the job but i learned so much from just going through the process with them and it's kind of it's 
quite often these things are looked at as what we call in the report tasks with deadlines. It's kind of it, it, it and it's not. You know, individuals don't look at. You know, you're just as likely to be buying something off of Amazon at midnight as you are at five a.m. in the morning, depending on when you're awake. It's not something you do between nine and five. And it's the same with this. Candidates are applying twenty four hours a day, and they're, they're looking for information twenty four hours a day. And the thing is to make information available. So the lean into learn is, I think. We see it more about giving candidates, applicants, a chance to learn about themselves, about career options, about their fit to specific roles. So if you're hiring for a marketing manager, it's it's not just let's have your CV, we'll get back to you. It's letting them know more about how your organization does marketing, what the marketing manager does, what they might be able to achieve with it. Look at some examples. They say, oh, that's really interesting. I'd like to get involved in a project like that. Or... You know, one of the areas that I don't have a lot of experience is this, but it looks like that's what I'll be doing there. Yeah. And it, it, it give, it's giving something of value. So it's, you know, respecting that they're devoting a lot of time and effort to this and it's giving something back. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, thanks for the application. We'll get back to you if we're interested. It's thanks for the application. Have a look at this. And, yeah. you know, as you've as you've applied to be a marketing manager, have a look at the latest marketing initiative we're doing. Or, or you know, it's, it's just giving something, giving information and helping people to feel a part of the organization. It's one of those little things that at the end of it, if you don't offer them, they'll say, you know what? It was great. I really I felt as if I was part of the organization. It was kind of they showed me stuff and it was quite a really great company. If you get the chance to apply, you really should. And that's yes. the kind of rec- recommendation you want. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about in this that example that you just gave, so you've got a marketing manager and maybe they tick 80% or 90% of the boxes that are required, but that 10%, they just don't have the skills on them. Being able to be given that proper feedback, if I was in that position, then suddenly I'm thinking, all right, well, why don't I go away? Now that I've been given this information, this feedback, I've learned this le- these lessons, I can now start to improve my own employability by focusing in on that 10%. And so like you said, that's the, the leaning into learn style. It's the, okay, I haven't got the job, but I know what I need to do to get a job like this in future. So I think that's really, really important. And you just touched on, delve into the second section now as well, because the next section is called Empower Attack Candidates from 9 to 5 to 24 7, which I think that's interesting. And I'm hoping you can just give us some examples of of what you know and what you've seen of companies that have turned that recruitment process, as you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, into a 24 7 thing. Because as you said, like Amazon, people aren't just applying for jobs Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. It's happening all of the time. And it's happening on their terms isn't it it is it's if, if we, we we talk about the dreaded nine to five clearly if i think back and, and you think back to our early days as recruiters uh, is kind of like we we didn't want to hear from the candidates you know outside of those hours i mean i did to be perfectly honest i always called candidates in the evenings to brief and get feedback so a lot of them couldn't talk during the days i'm afraid i'm going back to days before mobile phones and texting but it's kind of you know when you are looking for a job it's 24-7. You know, I, I, I'll come on to another one about how personal it is to the individual. But the the recruitment experience is is kind of, we talk about asynchronous tasks there. People can be, you know, if, if you have assessments or whatever to fill in, they can be doing it any time of the night or day. I remember some research being shared from one of the video interviewing platforms. This is about four or five years ago. And it's the kind of video interviewing where you preset, you know, four or five questions and the candidate will answer the questions at a convenient time for them. And they 
found that the most the time span that that was most used for people to do these interviews were between six and ten on a Sunday. And you know, you think about it like you, you wouldn't think, you wouldn't assume between six and ten on a Sunday. That's what people are thinking about because that's when they've got time to devote to this. You know, they might have had their day, their lunch, their family time. And, you know, rather than when they're rushing around during the week and working and stuff, I've got time to sit down and do that interview now. And again, this this could happen with, with anything. It gives candidates a level of control of the process. So they don't feel something is being done to them all the time. They feel that, that they can, they have input. And things like assessments, they can do what they want. Allow them to self-schedule interviews. Mm-hmm video interviews and stuff, as I've just touched on, at a time that suits them. Obviously, you know, but you might not have 6 to 10 p.m. on a Sunday evening open, but you might do if, if they're doing a video that's not a one-to-one. Realistic job pre. It's about the experience, but it's about, you know, I think giving people access to all this information, not just when the recruiter is at their desk or the recruiter is online at home, at any time that suits them. Yeah, it's interesting what you were just saying there, Merv, and particularly around the recruiter and, you know, working around their schedule. And hopefully what we've just seen from the pandemic, uh, one of the good things that we can get from it is more and more organisations, more and more businesses are starting to recognise this this need to be rather than nine to five, it's it, it's a bit more flexible from those people that are the interviewers as well. So, you know, from if I think about my perspective, I'm doing a podcast in a couple of weeks. Um, so I'm going to be on uh, diversity. But some of the one of the people that I'm speaking to is in the States. So they can't do it until eight o'clock. But because I have that flexibility in my work, you know, I will probably start my normal working day. But I'll probably go for a bit of a longer run. I might go for a walk with my uh, with my wife in the afternoon. I'm splitting up my day because I know that there's a bit more flexibility that's needed. So, so that's the interesting thing I think from from that perspective. But let me just I'm just going to kick us on just to the third section. And you also you kind of touched on this with the candies as well that you mentioned, which is around continually iterate, set and forget to agile. So, can you just give us a little bit of a, a synopsis, a snapshot, an overview of that particular section and what you guys were talking about in there? Yeah, the I think, as as we said at the beginning, it's kind of, you know, the candy experience is is not just one overall thing that you put. It's not like a dinner party. I've set everything up. It, it, it's dozens and dozens of touch points, micro experiences. And so it, what we say in the report is there are immediate opportunities to experiment, to innovate, to, to you know, try different things rather than just say, well, this is it. You know, that's the application. That's the way we've always received applications. These are the steps you always have to go through is to just try different things. And what uh, a lot of the, I suppose, the, the consumer brands like Netflix and stuff do is they, they continually iterate. So they, they just test, you know, you know, this year, a marketing guy, just testing within salary ranges, job titles. So, you know, if we we word something that way to people like that, you know, what what's the difference? Is there a better response? Is there more engagement? It, it's the small iterations make it a huge difference. And mm. because, as, as I said earlier, and you referred to, you know, the candidate experience awards don't recognize the same people every time. And that's because, you know, what, what was a great candidate experience one year, the following year, there are people doing it better. And that's because they iterate. They try 
different things and, and give more to the candidate as well to see how the candidates interact. And nowadays, we, we know we've got analytics. We, we, we can work out what makes the biggest difference. Uh, we, we can trace things to, to you know, acceptance rates, to people dropping out and stuff. I think it's something that, that, that is often overlooked. And it's just like, we've got a great experience. Everybody says it's great. That doesn't mean it will always be great. Yeah. Do you think, I want to ask you a question here, just from your experience, do you think, and you talked about how, and I've seen it as well, because um, for those listeners that aren't aware, my background before working at Lace Partners was in the recruitment industry. I was been, I've been a marketeer in the recruitment industry for about 10, 11 years before I joined Lace Partners. And you're right. We, you know, recruitment agencies, but also people in-house as well, working for the big uh, organizations or any types of organizations have been talking about candidate experience for a very, very long time. Have you seen, and I just reflecting as you were talking about the, can- the candies, have you seen more organizations start to adopt these kind of principles? You know, they are continuously iterating. Is it getting better? I guess is my, my overall question. It is getting better, but there's a long way to go. And I think that you know, I, I give worst case scenarios, companies not getting back to people and stuff. I mean, that still happens. I mean, you, you go onto social social media or LinkedIn or whatever. You go into private Facebook groups that you and I know of, of recruiters and stuff. And you hear about, you know, there's some awful experiences people have mm-hmm. and share. So, I mean, it, people are doing this because I think they're, they're fully aware and I think that the, the as well, you know, talent acquisition marketing is is recognised as its own thing. So, yeah. you know, there are people within talent acquisition teams in large organisations who are involved purely with talent intelligence, who are concerned purely with how to market, how to, I suppose, promote what they have there, how to attract candidates, how to give candidates something. And a lot of the tech that companies um, buy now to to process applications will give some of this stuff back. So it, it, it is possible, but it needs the will to do it. The will to do it. And also, I think that question on tech that you just mentioned, I think, is an interesting one because when 10, 15 years ago, that type of tech wasn't around, perhaps, and I'm, I'm kind of moving us on to section four here, which is called personalizing experiences. Perhaps it was a little bit more different. And so you'd get a more generic experience if you're if somebody is applying for a role. It's kind of a bit of a catch-all, mass-targeted, you know, communications type approach. And you talk about that in the in the white paper. So perhaps can you just elaborate on that a little bit in terms of some of the examples or what you can think of of businesses getting getting away from this idea of mass communications and any advice from the white paper that you could give to those listeners well consumer experiences we know are hyper targeted you know be you know we talk about amazon we talk about kind of l'oreal and stuff you know l'oreal do something where you can try on the makeup on a digital face you know to see what it looks like on your face and stuff those kind of things we know that those are the businesses they are, the, the, the line of business they're in. But there's no reason why something like you can't replicate in some way, almost like give them you know, the, the, not a game, but I mean, you know, decisions or, or, or as a kind of, you know, I said a marketing manager applying before, you know, just a kind of, you know, how would you plan a campaign or, or just something like that? I think that the, the important thing about personalizing experience is that job applications are highly personal. And, you know, that candidates have hopes and expectations. And over the years, 
I've prepared many candidates for interview and they go through a hell of a lot. And I've seen this particularly with the young generation, with my son and his friends, the amount of detail and research they do going into an interview to make sure they know absolutely everything. And the the, the interview can be over in 15 minutes. It can be, you know, all of the stuff they've done is, is kind of ignored. People have hopes and expectations. You don't know why they're applying to you. They might have very personal reasons. They might be the only breadwinner at home. There might be family problems, health reasons, why they, they're moving job. And it's just, I suppose, treating them as just kind of like, you know, if you don't hear back, we're not proceeding kind of thing. It's just so rude. And yeah. for customer-facing businesses, they would never treat a potential customer like that. And it's well, job applicants, they do. So I think it's, it's understanding that it's not just mass communication. It's personal communication. It, it, they apply as individuals with, as I said, hopes and expectations, and they want to be treated as such. They want to feel that they are getting a personalized email back, not a generic, if you don't hear within five days, then assume that we haven't taken you to the next stage. It's more, hi, Chris, thanks for applying. You know, it, it's and, and giving something like, you know, you haven't quite got this or that, or we're looking for more of this. You know, is there something that is, isn't in your application that might help us with that decision or just making it personal? Yeah. And then linked to that, obviously, Section 5 talks about being authentic, you know, rehearsed to real. And I really liked that it talked about in the report, we need to get away from overly produced employer brand videos. So linked to that, yeah. give that personalised experience yes. who is, they're taking their time and effort to apply to the role. But the reason they've applied to the role is because they believe in what you've got. So if you want to get more of the right type of people that are interested in working for you then as, as this as section five talks about you need to be more authentic you need to be true a bit more truth about you so can you just touch any thoughts on that particular section form yeah we know from i mean in the marketing world you'll know you know 92 percent consumers trust uh, user generated content over traditional advertising so we often say with employer branding and stuff, you know, glossy videos, glossy brochures of six people around a, a football table or something as it used to be a few years ago, all different ages, different backgrounds and stuff from their faces. People don't buy into that. What they want to know is the real people. Authenticity is crucial, we say in the uh, paper. They want to hear. They want to hear from people actually in the company doing the job at the moment um, what, what it's like there. Yeah. genuine content it could be hiring managers let let even if they don't get the job if they see the hiring manager on a video saying look this is this is me this is my background this is the role i'm i'm hiring for this is what i want people to do you know that something like that just the personal touch is, is so important it feels like they've had a real interaction and and it's it, it's not like they're being rejected you know by machine or something they actually there are humans there yeah. And if we take the example that we use right in the early of the poll, let's take that hypothetical marketing manager role that you didn't get the job because you're 80% there, but you've got 20% of the skills that are not quite ready for us now. Well, imagine that person, he or she has had you know, a really, really good experience. They've spoken to the line manager. The experience they've had is authentic. It's real. It's been personalized. Maybe that person goes away and over a period of a year, two years, starts to learn some of those skills. And in that period, in that intervening period, you've got 
somebody that comes back to you because they had such a good experience they think actually it's a company i wouldn't mind working with in future suddenly paying it forward so to speak or further down the line you find yourself with somebody who has got the skills who would be the right fit and because of the experience they went through previously it's easier to convert them to an actual employee if they go through the recruitment process again yes Definitely. There's um, a saying, I'm trying to remember it now, is something like not, there's a difference between not right and not right right now. Yeah. And that's that it's that second one that we need to i suppose put across because yes. it, it you know candidates that apply and don't just you know don't exactly match what we want at the moment for a variety of reasons might have that in the future yeah, yeah it's definitely. kind of why we say when people leave the organization we talk about retention of relationship you know just once they've gone we still need them in some kind of alumni network or whatever yeah Definitely. Now, we're just coming towards the end of the podcast, but I just want to finalise on the sixth piece of the white paper, which is differentiate biodiversity, a display to demonstration. What can employers do to make it more than just a sh- for show or box ticking exercise? And we're talking, obviously, in the in the white paper, we're talking about that, that diversity element, because you know, that's been in the last 18 months, two years, we've heard a lot about you know, organisations really upping their game from a DE&I perspective. But is there anything just that you can reflect on to, that employers can do to make it more than just a, a, a for show or a, a box ticking exercise in terms of that candidate experience, that point before they become employees? I suppose it goes back to making it real. And I think the concern from research, not this research, but general research I've been involved with, shows that when it comes to DEIB, job seekers are concerned that it's it's a kind of a, a policy statement, a kind yeah. of positioning statement, as opposed to something that's really lived within the organisation. And so it's I suppose there's two or three things that we pull out. It, firstly, it's it, it's an organisational priority. I don't I don't think I need to stress that now. Uh, I think everybody realises it is. But two-thirds, research shows like two-thirds of jobs, all job seekers, see a diverse workforce as important. Yeah, they want to work in a diverse well, that's how they live their lives. They have they have a diverse community, a diverse family, probably diverse. You know, and that's what they expect work to look like. So I think it, it, it can't be passive. It needs to be there. It needs to be embedded in the organization. It can't be a kind of, oh, look, you know, we've put a, a, a glossy employer branding video together and we've made sure that we've ticked every box. It's not something like that because people see through that. So I mm. think it's being proactive proactive with communication and one of the things that i picked up talking to people was about this this uh, point we make about making sure the application process clearly treats all candidates fairly so if they're going through an application process and you know it, it, it i think people want to feel that or if they had a disability, if they were from a different ethnic background, whatever, it, it, they wouldn't be effectively filtered out by this stage. You know, it would, I, I think back to my early days as a, an agency recruiter and a couple of candidates who were wheelchair bound. And it's kind of, you, see, you speak to organisations and it, it's kind of like, you know, used to say about, used to mention they're in a wheelchair and it's like, well, we've got no access. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, 
we're on the third floor of a building there's no lift and it's kind of like almost like there's a diet i don't think yeah i'm pretty sure that things aren't that way anymore but i mean it, it's being that kind of i suppose proactive organization that not just doesn't just talk about things like dei and b or you know, actually makes it clear from the way they are from their communication that you know they, they, they are open it is a diverse workforce yeah, brilliant. Well, Merv, thank you very, very much. It's um, been fascinating to just get your thoughts on some of those particular sections. And definitely, we'll certainly be having Merv on for uh, so Merv and I can put the world to rights. Uh, we might even try and shoehorn a HR related topic into a conversation about Arsenal, but we'll, we'll <laughs> leave that one on tenterhooks. We'll leave that one on tenterhooks for now. Merv, uh, once again, thank you very much for joining us. It's been my pleasure, Chris. I've enjoyed the chat. Yeah, it's been great to have you on. Um, you can get this podcast through uh, all of the places that you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts. Call out to your Alexa device. And uh, if you call out the HR on the Offensive podcast, you'll get the latest one of these. And you can also see our back catalogue of podcasts. We are coming up to, oh, in about four or five episodes, I think we're up to 100. I said to Aaron the other day that we're on about 50, but I got that completely wrong because I think we'll come up to about 100 episodes soon. So we will... Uh, Maybe make some noise about that when we uh, we do our 100th episode. But on behalf of myself, Merv and Lace Partners, thank you very much for listening. And we will see you next time on the HR on the Offensive podcast. Bye-bye.